<laughs> We're going to uh, talk about tongues today, tongues speaking in the New Testament. We're at letter T, and there are a lot of, always uh, with each letter, I've found a lot of ways to go. But uh, just to leave a whole list of things that uh, people might be interested in and subjects that uh, affect us and that we're interested in, I think it's worthwhile to spend this hour talking about uh, tongue speaking in, in the New Testament. So we will do that and turn to those passages of Scripture in just a, in just a minute. You know that um, after the apostles died off, and the first century was over, there, was, there were very few instances of tongue speaking throughout church history. So if you go back through the history books, you basically, when you find it, you find it among groups that were considered to be heretical. Uh, th those groups that were kind of shunned or for other reasons did not, uh, were not accepted in Orthodox Christianity. Uh, so throughout history, we don't have a lot after the New Testament for us to go back to and say, oh, here's a group, here's a group, uh, because those kind of groups are fairly unreliable. It was not until the 20th century that tongue speaking in the churches came out again. And uh, when it did, it began very slowly. The first one was in 1900 on New Year's Eve in Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas, so just down the road from us uh, at a, uh, a Bible study type of setting. Uh, a woman named Agnes Osman uh, uh, prayed and uh, began to speak in a gibberish that she claimed was from God. Then uh, the Azusa Mission, also a few years later in uh, Los Angeles, someone did the same thing. This was early 20th century, early 1900s. And then this kind of phenomena of tongue speaking was kept within the Pentecostal type movement, the Pentecostal and its offshoots, uh, you know, that uh, w would uh, practice... Uh, you know, uh, the, the miracle working, the healing services, and so forth, and the tongue speaking kind of fit right in with what they were doing. I can remember as a, as a boy visiting in my grandfather's house uh, in Springfield, Missouri. We'd, I'd be there a lot of times in the summer, and just down the street on the other corner was a little white square building, uh, an Assembly of God building, and if you walk by there some nights, you could hear some pretty interesting stuff going on inside, you know. And, you know, I went to a Baptist church with my grandpa, but we didn't do that kind of thing. So you might remember things like that. But then in um, 1900, in St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California, Father Dennis Bennett began to speak with to in tongues. And so then the tongue speaking jumped out of just the Pentecostal circles into the other denominational circles in 1960. And once that happened, then the door was kind of opened a little bit farther. And, uh, of course, we remember the 60s, right? Uh, anything goes in the 60s, and, and uh, you know, everything is allowed. And so uh, there were a lot of... Uh, 
Jesus people groups who were ready to break away from the norms and do their own thing in their own way. So tongue speaking caught on. And so really, uh, in the second half of the 20th century mostly, and up until today, uh, we've, all, we've had to talk about speaking in tongues and whether or not it's biblical, whether we should do it, and so forth. So, you know, I am uh, a fundamental Baptist pastor. I'm speaking to a group at a fundamental Baptist church. It's not been our history to speak in tongues. And so we don't do that in our church. As a matter of fact, uh, and this is why we have the lesson here today, but we uh, come to the conclusion that it's not of God, and it's not God's will that we do that. So it puts, it puts us in a dilemma with other believers. You know, it's, it's easy to confront someone who's not a believer, who's, who practices some odd religion or some, uh, you know, cultic type of thing, and confront them. It's, it's a harder thing with someone who may be a brother in Christ who's doing something you really disagree with, and, and therefore he disagrees with you too. Uh, so there, that's the position we've been put in in the last half of the 20th century where we have to disagree and do it charitably, but do it, and then practice how we feel like the, that the Scripture would tell us to practice. So it has caused a lot of uh, consternation uh, among people, among believers in the 20th century. Uh, it's also been a very ecumenical glue, if you will, as tongue speaking went out into various denominations, including Roman Catholicism in, in instances. And therefore, uh, you know, rather than saying, uh, we should uh, uh, have an ecumenical tie because of our doctrine. Now you could say we should have this ecumenical tie because of practice, because of what we do, even if our doctrines are almost opposite to one another. And so tongue speaking in this kind of a, an experience-oriented uh, phenomena pulled people together out of experience and emotion, I might say, not necessarily out of doctrine. And so again, uh, it, it, we have had to kind of keep the ecumenical movement at arm's length, uh, in, especially in our doctrinal differences, and then we find ourselves also kind of try, having to hold that off in, in emotional or experiential differences too, because it might bring us into things that we don't feel like we can practice. All right? So... Uh, even in our day, it's, uh, with some, it might even be a test of spirituality. Uh, it's still in the older uh, Pentecostal circles. Uh, uh, Jimmy Swagger, for example, uh, used to preach this very hard. You remember Jimmy? <laughs> uh, that, uh, that a true believer will speak in tongues, that it is the proof from the Holy Spirit that you are truly born again. And if you don't speak in tongues, then you don't have that confirmation from the Holy Spirit that you are truly born again. 
So in some circles, it became kind of a test of spirituality, which obviously we kind of repel against and say, you know, I don't think so. Uh, we have our baptism, right, uh, to, to say that. Okay, so the question then, uh, really, for us, the bottom line is always, uh, is it biblical, and should we do it? Uh, we, we would ask the same question about things like foot washing, you know. Uh, it happened in the New Testament, like tongue speaking happened in the New Testament. The question is, are we supposed to be doing that? Uh, of course, it might be a little difference there with something like foot washing. It's whether or not you want to do it. <laughs> With tongue speaking, it's whether or not the Holy Spirit makes you do it, right? And does that happen from the Holy Spirit or not? And it's so a little bit different than those kinds of things. So as we, as we look at it this morning, briefly, we're going to do three things. Look at the nature of tongues, that is, what is that thing? What, what happens when that takes place? And we'll look in the New Testament where it happens. We'll look at the purpose why there was tongue speaking in the New Testament, what purpose did it serve, and then thirdly, the extent of it, which of course, from our perspective, is that the phenomenon ended uh, in, the New, in the New Testament era, that is, in the first century, and it's not been a biblical phenomenon since then. That's our position. Okay, so... First, the original nature of tongues. Are, would, would it surprise you to, to remember or, or know that there are only four places in the New Testament where tongue speaking is even mentioned? You know, sometimes you, sometimes you think that, uh, boy, it's on every page of the New Testament, right? It's everywhere you turn. You know, uh, Jesus never spoke about it. Uh, and it only appears then first in Acts chapter 2. So go, go there, Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, as you remember. That's where you get the name Pentecostal and so forth. And then two more times in the book of Acts and one time outside the book of Acts, and that's all. There's no more teaching on it. There's no more examples of it. There's no more instances uh, where we know that it happened. So when you think about it, Tongue speaking isn't a very big thing in the New Testament. So if you make it a big thing, especially if you make it a test for salvation, I really think you've, you've pressed it beyond what the New Testament makes it, that's for sure. And by the way, the, 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 the first instance is Acts 2, then in Acts 10, then in Acts 19, and the third one is the book of 1 Corinthians, so that... So that in three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, Paul deals with this thing of spiritual gifts, which includes prophecy and tongues primarily and other certain things like healing, gifts of healing and those kinds of things. So even though he covers it in three chapters, I'm using that as one instance of it. I mean, if you count the word, you'd get it more often, but, but he, only, he only writes to the church about it in that one time. Okay, so really four times. So in uh, chapter 2 of Acts, you have when the day of Pentecost was fully come, there, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It doesn't really mean there was a wind, but it, there was a sound like that. And it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them clothing 
cloven, excuse me, tongues like as a fire, and it sat on each of them. Now, first of all, there's a visible manifestation of some kind that they saw. You know, you've seen drawings of this or whatever, but we're not sure exactly what that would be. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice the Spirit does it. A little footnote here. You will never find in the New Testament in any of these passages where a person is commanded to seek this gift or where, where, he, where a person ever says, I want to do that, how do I do it? That's totally foreign. When it happens, it happens because the Holy Spirit made it happen to them. Because a lot of tongue speaking today is something that you learn from a child. I know that because when we were in California for three years, I was teaching at a school out there, and our first two kids were little preschoolers, and we had to put them in a daycare. And the only daycare available to us was an Assembly of God church that had a little daycare. So we put Michael and Rebecca in this little daycare. And they were there, you know, we'd take them there before we'd go to work, come back. Ann worked at the college, too. And we'd come back, pick the kids up, and go home. And then uh, uh, we began to notice at dinner time that when we prayed, their hands went up in the air. <laughs> These are preschoolers, <laughs> you know, and things like this. And we began to, and, and sure enough, they were being trained to, when they prayed and, and so forth. So uh, we have two little charismatics in our family. Maybe that's where Rebecca learned to sing so well. I don't know, you know. No, we, so we uh, kind of conveniently found another place to put our kids because, in other words, they were being trained physically to go through the motions so that they could begin doing this uh, automatically, you might say. Now, back to, back to our verse, especially in verse 4. You, it, when it says the word tongues in verse 3 and in verse 4, it's the word glosa. Glosa, a Greek word glosa, uh, is the common word for tongue. Uh, and so we refer to speaking in tongues sometimes as glossolalia. I don't know if you've, you, you know, glossolalia comes from glosa, glosa and lalalia, which means to speak. So to speak with tongues, glossolalia. Now, it's interesting, though, that look at the end of verse 6. Well, let me, let me read it. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own. Now we have the word language. And in verse 8, every man in our own tongue. Now, both of those words, I'm reading the older King James, of course, here, but uh, the, uh, the, the word language in verse 6 and the word tongue in verse 8 comes from a different Greek word, dialecto. What English word do we get from dialecto? We get a word dialect. So actually these words are being used synonymously. Uh, one could trade off for the other. So when we, when we t say uh, oh, that's a different tongue than I know. Don't we mean dialect? Sure, that's what we mean, a language. So another footnote here, and that is we're going to find that tongue speaking was always a language. Even in Corinthians later on, there was a false speaking in tongues that Paul has to address that might have been a gibberish that no one understood. 
But the biblical speaking of tongues was always a language that if you happened to speak that language and knew that language, you could understand it. And if you didn't speak that language, the tongues, someone needed to interpret. Remember that instruction in 1 Corinthians 14? Then let somebody interpret so that they can give you an interpretation. Like, you know, we might have a missionary or somebody from a foreign land. He comes up here, he speaks. Sam did this last time he brought a Ukrainian fellow with him. And we heard Ukrainian, but we don't speak that dialect. Sam translates into, into English. And so that's the instruction in the Bible to do when this thing happens if there are people present who don't understand that language, that tongue. So understand that the idea of tongues or dialect is the same thing. Then in chapter 10, in chapter 10, you have the, uh, the case of, of uh, Thomas going to, uh, I'm sorry, that's an... I probably should, I guess I could mention chapter 8 um, just for this reason. In, in, when Philip goes to Samaria in Acts chapter 8, and it says that uh, many believed, and for example in verse 13, Simon even believed and was baptized. And he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. But never does it say in chapter 8 that they spoke with tongues. Some people think surely they must have because this was kind of happening as, as the gospel went out from Jerusalem, but it, it doesn't mention it there. So we can't list tongue speaking in the revival that took place in Samaria. But when we get to chapter 10, we're at Caesarea, mentioned in verse 1. And this is where Cornelius... Uh, the, the, the angel appears to Cornelius and says, you need to go find Peter and bring him to your house because Peter will tell you what you need to know to be saved. So he sends down to Joppa. He gets Peter. Peter comes up to uh, Caesarea with some of his partners, and they come in and they preach the gospel to these Gentiles uh, in Caesarea. And so in verse 44, while Peter spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word, that is, they believed, of course, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, the Jews were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. <coughs> Excuse me. And they heard them speak with, here's our word again, tongues and magnify God. And so then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized. Of course, that's in water in the name of the, of the Holy Spirit. Let me also put a footnote in here. As I'm doing this, all kinds of footnotes are flashing in my head, so I'll insert what I can. I have marked in my book of Acts, in the, in the three places where tongues happens, the order of things that took place. So in uh, Acts chapter uh, 2, and, uh, well, I guess this is a good place to mention, and here, notice you have they were saved first, then the Holy Spirit came on them, then they spoke with tongues, then they received water baptism uh, in, in this order. But 
in every place that tongues happen, sometimes that order gets reversed, except that salvation always comes first. So we're always talking about someone who's saved here. Sometimes they were water baptized, and then the Holy Spirit came on them. Sometimes they were, the Holy Spirit came on them, they spake in tongues, then they were water baptized. There was no specific order, in other words, that had to be followed to make this thing happen. And there is no order today either. And when you and I speak of baptism, we know two baptisms, remember. When we get saved today, the Holy Spirit immediately regenerates us and indwells us, okay? Matter of fact, regeneration is salvation. And we call that baptism of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. So when you got saved, you were Holy Spirit baptized. That is the only Holy Spirit baptism that the New Testament knows anything about. Then, having been regenerated by spirit baptism... You followed the command of the Lord to be water baptized, which pictures the spirit baptism. So the spirit baptism that happened at your salvation placed you into the universal body of Christ. Your water baptism, which is a picture of that, is a prerequisite for you to come into the local body of Christ. So that is the way we practice it. Now, our Pentecostal friends and, and others might say to us, well, they believe that you can get saved and then afterwards, at some later time, receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then you must speak with tongues in order to confirm that you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And where we differ with them on that is to say, no, we received that spirit baptism the moment we got saved. It doesn't have to be accompanied with tongues or any other miracle. It happened when we got saved, and it, and it cannot happen again if it happened. You possess the Holy Spirit. He lives within you. That baptism placed you into the body of Christ. You are there sealed under the day of redemption. It can't be repeated. All right? So... Uh, just a side note, so you understand that. Now, it happened here, uh, and this would be sometime in the 30s A.D. You remember that Pentecost happens 32 or 33 A.D., depending on the year that Jesus died. And this would only be a couple years, a few years at the most after that, when this tongue speaking takes place in Acts chapter 10. Now go to 19, Acts chapter 19. And now we, we do move up to the third missionary journey of Paul. So we're in the late 50s, around 60 even A.D. So we've jumped up quite a bit. Well, we will put Corinthians a little before this, but we're not, we're not to 1 Corinthians yet. Uh, so actually, when we look at Acts chapter 19 at Ephesus, verse 1, we're looking at the last time tongues is mentioned in the New Testament. Do you understand what I said there? Because even though 1 Corinthians is placed to your right in the New Testament, chronologically, 1 Corinthians has been written before Acts 19 takes place. you understand what I'm saying? So, so, so you have the beginning of it in, at, at Pentecost. You have one instance at Caesarea, 
Paul writes to the Corinthian church about it in between, and now you come to the late 50s, and Paul is going to come to Ephesus, and it's going to happen again, and never do we see it again in the New Testament. So he said unto them, verse 2, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? And they said, we have not so much as heard whether there be a Holy Ghost. This is thanks to uh, Apollos' preaching. And he said unto them, and then what were you baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. And he said, well, John baptized the baptism of repentance, but he meant believe on the Lord Jesus, the end of verse 4. And when they heard this, they were baptized, water, that is, in the name of the, of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Here the order is they were saved, they received water baptism, the laying on of hands of the apostles, then the Holy Spirit came on them, then they spake with tongues. Again, the order changes uh, every little bit. So here uh, you have the last mention uh, I, I might put this little footnote in. Everywhere we're going to see the speaking of tongues, there are apostles there too. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Then we go to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, all right? And uh, just turn there. You, you might see the markings that you have, or maybe you have a, a study Bible or something that has these chapters kind of designated. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12 you have now concerning spiritual gifts, and he begins to deal with this, and he goes all the way through chapter 14. Chapter 13 is kind of a parenthesis where he talks mainly about love and then comes back to uh, the instructions about tongues. Uh, so, uh, tongues appears here in, in the list of things uh, that uh, they did and that he's instructing them about. And um, in chapter 14, well, we're, we're going to look at chapter 13 and verse 8 and 9 and 10 in a minute. Because he says, whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. That's an important statement. If tongues are going to cease, our, our question is, when did that happen? Or has it happened? Whether it be knowledge, there shall, it shall vanish away, and so forth. All right? Now, another thing about this chapter uh, is that you have the expression tongues and unknown tongues. Uh, so look at chapter 14, for example, and verse 2. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God, and no man understandeth him. Howbeit in the, in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. Notice the word unknown there in the King James, and properly so, is the word unknown uh, in italics. Whereas down in verse 9, so likewise, except ye utter by the tongue words easily to be understood, their meaning the dialect, or verse 5. I would that you all spake with tongues. No word unknown there. And here's an interesting thing. Uh, I don't know whether you like John MacArthur or not. I like him in most things. There are only a couple things that I kind of disagree with, but I like to read him. And, and on these things of spiritual gifts, and especially the tongue speaking and the, and the uh, charismatic movement, he is great on it. 
He's got a couple good books that have been become classics on the charismatic movement. One's called Charismatic Chaos, and I think the second edition of it, the name might have changed a little bit, but get the book and read it. Now, he does something here, and, and, and uh, other commentators have followed him on this. He, he's probably not the first, but I mean, he, he made it well known, that he points out that the, that the original King James translators were right on and he doesn't even use the King James, so it's, he's not promoting it. He's just saying they were right on when they, when they recognized that when Paul here in this chapter is speaking of false tongues, they put the word unknown in there. And when he's speaking about true tongue speaking, a language that needs to be interpreted, they leave the, the word unknown off. And I think he said maybe there's one ex possible exception in chapter 14 to that. So as you read it, his opinion would be that Paul is, and uh, MacArthur and others go into this, that there, were lot, there was lots of, by this time, false speaking in tongues done in the temple of Diana, done in the temple of Aphrodite, and all of these occult religions, they all spoke with tongues. And Corinth was a mid-mash of various different things like that. So what was happening is you have a true gift of tongues. It's getting old. It's passing away. And then you have a false speaking in tongues, and they begin to get mixed in the church, where you might have a true instance where someone speaks in tongues, someone interprets, and that's valid. And then you have somebody borrowing from the pagan temples speaking some gibberish that no one can interpret and no one knows, and that's a false speaking in tongues, and, and Paul is correcting it here. So I think that's an interesting point of view, and I think probably true. We do know, by the way, that false religions have had their speaking in tongues. As a matter of fact, all over the world today, there, there are people in, in Muslim and Hindu religions that speak in tongues. There are Roman Catholics that speak in tongues. I ask you, is a Hindu filled with the Spirit? Is there speaking in tongues of the Holy Spirit? Well, no, it's not. So you have to admit that the speaking in tongues can be done in a false way, right? In a religious sense. And if it can happen in those circles... It can creep into our circles, too, if we're not careful. And our claim is that that's exactly what has happened in our day. All right? Um, seven, seven conclusions. Let me just read them quickly that I have about these three chapters in 1 Corinthians. Number one, it's the least of all gifts. It's always at the last. If they had a gift from the Holy Spirit, the last thing they wanted was the speaking in tongues. Give me prophecy. Give me miracles. Give me... Give me uh, something else uh, other than tongues. It's always the least of the gifts. Secondly, it, it is to always be motivated by love. Thirdly, evidently it was not for the women in the church. And that's what chapter 14, verses 34 and 35 mean when it says, let the women keep silent in the church. It's not been our position that you women are not supposed to talk in church. We, we try to borrow from that as much as we can, but it's, no, I'm just kidding. But it, it, it surely doesn't mean that. We do hold that a woman should not teach a man, and we hold to that, not from this passage, but from Paul's other letters. 
but women teach women. Women teach in our Sunday school. Women uh, uh, sing. Women uh, don't preach. Uh, so, so there are certain things that Paul set out in the church, and tongue speaking was one of them, evidently, that the women should not. And so I ask you, if that's true, who does most of the tongue speaking in charismatic circles? At least 50% of it anyway, if not much more, is done by women. And who began the first tongue speaking back in Topeka, Kansas in 1901? A woman did. So, so I, I think that that's a, a proper interpretation. Fourthly, some, if someone speaks in tongues, someone else must interpret. Fifthly, you have to do it one at a time. Never have two people speaking in tongues at once. Sixthly, it was never sought. You, you don't seek it and say, oh, Lord, please let me speak in tongues. Never is there such a command or an instance. And for, seventhly, uh, in these three chapters, there's a certain even ridicule by Paul of false speaking in tongues. You speak to, you, you're not speaking to anybody but yourself. Nobody can can be encouraged by your speaking in tongues, so seek to prophesy. At least somebody's encouraged by it. In other words, he's kind of belittling the unknown tongue, the false tongue. Okay, how to move on, so let me do that. Uh, the second major category that we're talking about this morning is the purpose for tongues. The, we, we just looked at uh, the uh, nature for tongues and how it was done in the New Testament. What is the purpose? Well, it is a sign gift. There were two types of gifts in the New Testament, revelatory gifts and sign gifts. When the, New, when the Holy Spirit gave people miraculous power, it was for one of those two broad categories. So inspiration was a revelatory gift, and the, and the biblical writers had the gift of inspiration. A prophet was a revelatory gift. And so he could give uh, that gift of prophecy to somebody. He foretold the future. Obviously, that came from the Holy Spirit. You can't do that of yourself. Then there are sign gifts. Healing was the most prominent one. Jesus, uh, of course, healed many, and then the apostles uh, had that same power given to them by uh, Christ, and they had the ability to heal people, even to the point of raising the dead, by the way. So... The apostolic gift, you're in Corinthians, are you still? Go to 2 Corinthians, go to 2 Corinthians 12, and let me show you this statement about, that Paul makes about himself, about an apostle. He says, truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you. He's speaking about, of course, himself when he was there in Corinth, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. We don't have time right now, but sometime start in Acts chapter 2 with the miracles, the healing, and follow through the statements clearly that show that it was the apostles that worked miracles, not just everyday Christian. The apostles, and they had the ability to lay their hands on someone else so that they could work miracles, but that person could never pass it on beyond them. As a matter of fact, uh, let me then uh, uh, go to Hebrews to kind of illustrate that fact. Hebrews chapter 2. And 
And let me read a few verses in Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, that is the law of Moses, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now notice this which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. All right, so, so Jesus himself speaks first. And then it says, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Who are those people that heard him? The apostles. God also bearing them, those apostles, witness, both with signs and wonders diverse miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. And you might notice that the author puts himself in the third generation. You have Christ, who did it. Then you have those that heard him, the apostles. And then you have us, he says, who have heard the apostles speak. And he's indicating that we don't have that ability. It passes away with the apostles, which, of course, we believe and we have seen. So the original purpose was to give signs of what was happening. Now, uh, without you turning to them again, let me say, in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the believers speak to convince the unsaved Jews that the message that they are hearing is from God. Here this Jewish nation has crucified their Messiah. They believe these Christians need to be wiped out, and they cannot be speaking from God. And yet here comes these miracles, especially and tongue speaking among them, to say, no, these men are from God. Acts chapter 10, the new converts from the Gentiles speak in order to convince the Jewish believers that God is giving the gospel to the Gentiles as well. So it's a sign given to someone there that is hearing. Acts 19, the new converts speak to convince the old believers again of God's message. 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, believers speak to edify other believers. And it's kind of interesting, there are always Jews present when tongue speaking takes place because the Jewish nation uh, had said Jesus is not our Messiah, and this new movement called Christianity is not our movement. It's not of God. And then all of a sudden, here come these miracles right in the face of those Jewish believers that says, oh, yes, it is from God. And so Jews were always present, and apostles were always present because they were the ones doing it or had put their hands on others who did it. And so it was to authenticate the message of the apostles and to give to the unbelievers, Jews primarily and even Gentiles, the message that this new Christian thing called Christianity is of God. All right, let me move on thirdly to the extent of tongues and go back to 1 Corinthians 13 with me, if you will, real quickly. I may run out of time with this. Uh, I'll try to go quickly, but it might be worth coming back to. In 1 Corinthians 13 where he's talking about love primarily, he ends that statement and begins in verse 8, love never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. 
and whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. Now, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this in a deductive manner because of the time here. So let me just give you the conclusion. I'm going to back up and, and we'll go as far as we can in the proofs of this. What is being said here is that tongue speaking will stop of itself at a certain time. And the other gifts mentioned here as knowledge and prophecy, revelatory gifts, they will be, they will be brought to a close when that which is perfect or the New Testament is completed. So generally those of us who are cessationists, that is we believe these things have ceased, we would put the end of tongues no later than 70 A.D. When God took away the Jewish nation and the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., of course, we don't, find, we don't find any more speaking in tongues after Acts 19, and that's 60 A.D., so by 70, there's no speaking in tongues. The Jewish nation is gone. There's no more need for tongues. And they cease of themselves, middle voice. The other revelatory gifts will go on until the New Testament is complete, especially the gift of inspiration, the gift of prophecy like John's revelation and so forth. And then when that which is perfect, which those of us who take this position usually interpret as the New Testament itself, the perfect, finished, complete revelation of God, when we have this in 95 A.D., we don't need inspiration anymore. We don't need prophecy anymore. We don't need revelatory gifts any longer. And so those things ceased when the New Testament ceased. Okay, so that's the conclusion of what we think 8, 9, and 10 here, these verses are saying. We do know it says tongues shall cease. And again, the, the question is when and how. And so we're saying this. It's Prophecy and knowledge here, is, they are put together in this passage, and tongues is singled out by itself. Unfortunately, the older King James translates one single Greek word in three or four different ways here, and it becomes confusing. You see the word uh, fail in verse 8, prophecies, they shall fail. Same word translated vanish away at the end of the sentence. Same word. So prophecies fail, knowledge vanishes away. But in other words, they're rendered inoperative. The verse, the, at the end of verse 10, done away, same word. End of verse 11, put away, same word. <laughs> All come from the same Greek word. Verb, I should say. So, so that is in a passive voice. If, if you understand what I'm saying, it shall be ended. It shall be brought to a close. Four times, revelatory gifts are said, God will bring them to a stop. And he did that when the New Testament was completed. Tongues, however, will cease, stop. And that's in a middle voice, which we would translate as stop of themselves. So we believe that tongues stopped before 70 A.D. or by then, all on their own. God didn't have to even bring them to an end. He just didn't give the gift anymore. Okay? Now, when we talk then to our charismatic friends, and they may be brothers and sisters in Christ, and so when we disagree, let's 
disagree charitably and in a Christian spirit, but this is, this is basically where we come from. So that we're not denying that tongue speaking did not happen in the New Testament. Of course it happened. We are saying that it hasn't happened throughout church history except in negative ways. Uh, and we are saying that then if it happens even in the 20th and the 21st century, that it cannot be of God. It has to be something else happened for some other reason this tongue speaking took place. The same thing we would say again. If you heard a Hindu speaking in tongues, you would say, well, I don't know why it's happening, but it's not of the Holy Spirit. Kind of the same conclusion. So I, I would draw these seven conclusions. I'm going to read them. That's the end of the lesson. Number one, and maybe most remote, but a real possibility is that sometimes tongue speaking could be satanic. We know that, the, that Satan and his demons can cause even believers to do strange things. I believe near-death experiences, you know, where they think they see heaven and they th everything is joy and peace and contradictory to the whole New Testament, and they come back and say, oh, this is what I saw, this is the way life after death is going to be. I believe that's a vision from Satan himself contradicting the Word of God. So it can happen with tongues. Secondly, of course it can be emotional, and, and children grow up learning to mouth these things and learning to speak the glossolalia, which is just gibberish. It's not a New Testament dialect at all. Thirdly, sometimes this happens as a shortcut to maturity. If you were in one of these religions and you hadn't spoken in tongues, you'd be, you'd be a, a lesser saint. You have to speak in tongues to show that you're mature, so you need to do it, and people try to do it. Fourthly, I think it happens by faulty exegesis. In other words, again, not properly understanding the New Testament. That's a begging the question, but in other words, I still believe it. And uh, so what should we do? Uh, number one, or fifthly, I think we should stay away from it and should not try to practice it and not be in those circles where it is being practiced. I think that we should learn not to swallow everything we see and hear. <laughs> Because the fact that phenomenon takes place doesn't mean it's of God. The, the greatest false miracles and phenomenon is yet to happen, folks, and it happens by the false prophet in the middle of the tribulation period. And the whole world is deceived by his false miracles. And the whole world is going to have to understand you don't follow everything you see and hear. You test it against the Word of God. And so... Number three, learn to be content with your New Testament, okay? Learn to be content with what it tells you to do and how it tells you to live. You'll find much more joy and peace and satisfaction, and I think power from the Holy Spirit than you would otherwise. All right, so that's our very quick flyover lesson on speaking in tongues. Let's pray. Father, thank you for time together this morning and uh, having a chance to think again about this uh, New Testament uh, thing that we see. Help us to understand it. Help us, Father, to, to uh, be confident about your word and uh, to be kind to one another, but to be confident and, and firm in what we believe. Well, thank you for these things always in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning.